Hello and welcome to the Let's Talk Business podcast with Chalk Hill Blue. At Chalk Hill Blue, we're really passionate about helping business owners unlock the true potential of their business in every way that we can. And that's why we've started the Let's Talk Business podcast. We're going to be inviting business owners, entrepreneurs and industry experts to discuss key topics we all face as business owners to give you ideas, inspiration and motivation to move your business forward. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow our social media to make sure you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. Welcome to today's edition of Let's Talk Business. Uh, today I'm delighted to be joined by Steve Jones from Focal Point Negotiation. Welcome, Steve. Thanks very much. Great to have you here. Um, we're, we're kind of blessed to have a, a true expert in our midst. Um, you've done some amazing things in your career and today you run a hugely successful um, consultancy practice looking at negotiation, how to improve it. Perhaps tell some of our viewers today a little bit more about yourself. If you yeah, I mean, most of my career has been working for a lot of the really, really big major retail companies. So I've been in buying and, um, well, buying and selling my whole career. And uh, in about 2000, I was buying director at WH Smith. So I got, sorry, the position was made redundant, but it felt like I got the sack. And... Uh, <laughs> And I Positions thought, everything, right? Well, yeah, indeed. And so at that point, I was thinking, right, what shall I, what shall I do now? Because I, ha- I must confess, I was getting a bit bored of the same corporate stuff. Because all that happens is you go from one corporate to another, and the numbers change, and the context is a bit different, but essentially it's the same gig. And people said to me, you're good at coaching, you're good at negotiation, why don't you coach people to negotiate? And I thought, if I can make money, why don't I do that? And the rest, as they say, is history. So give us a, an example, because I, I know you've worked uh, extensively here in the UK, but equally globally with some you know, pretty impressive household names. Give us some insight into the sorts of businesses you've been working in. Well, I mean, my claim to fame is shortly after I started doing this, in 2003, I was training all the buying team at Tesco. And um, in the year I started working with them, they reduced their prices by 10% and kept their margin the same. That's a benefit of three billion quid. Now, I'd like to say that's down to the legend that is Steve Jones, but I think some of it was mixed and a bit of change as well. But I, I'm sure that um, they kept me there doing that for nearly a decade, so I'm assuming that they thought it was okay as well. But I've also, I mean, I've done things as small as I work with one small company that does make, make software, and I was negotiating to get a four grand bad debt back for them. So it's a, quite a wide range. I mean, all that happens is the context changes, the number of noughts change, but the skills are the same. And, and, and over the years, you know, uh, you've presumably seen some, some great scenarios and some not so great scenarios. What are the stories that uh, always spring to mind? Uh, well, I, I have to say, the one that probably irritates, well, irritates half of the country is what went on over Brexit. And I thought, this is so important, I've got to get involved in this. And I got in to see... David Davis's chief of staff in Downing Street to offer my services as the Brexit negotiator, but they told me they had it completely under control. Yeah, yeah, well, and we all know how that went. Well, indeed, mm. indeed. Cool. Um, we've had loads of uh, requests for for help and advice from uh, followers of the Chalk Hill Blue social media pages and, and so on and so forth. And towards the end, I'd love to come back and, and go through some of those if time permits. Sure. Um, but I think uh, what we said we might cover today, uh, first and foremost, is um, some of the elements that ultimately lead to either a good negotiation or indeed, as you prefer to it, a crap one. Yeah. Um, 
Do you want to share some of your insights from all that great experience in Paddo meetings? Well, I think I would say that there are five commandments to okay. negotiation. And probably the first commandment is make sure that you only believe things that are true. Right. Okay. Now, if you think about what drives people's behaviour generally, their behaviours are driven by what they believe. So if you're believing things that aren't true, uh, then your negotiations are going to be a shambles. I mean, there's classic things like you hear people saying, um, uh, you know, the customer's always right. And I'm thinking, the customer's always the customer, and without customers, you don't have a business. But the customer's always right, provided they treat you properly. But what we, what we end up with, a lot of salespeople I see, is they take this subservient role. And I would say that when you're selling, it's a bit like the mafia, isn't it? It's business, it's not personal. And what you've got going on here is an exchange of goods or services for money. Mm. Nobody's doing anybody a favour. But I mean, a number of times, one of the things I try to get people not to do is at the end of meetings, uh, and I'm sure you don't do this anyway, and I'm sure you won't do it after today if you do so far. Okay. Yeah, people say, thanks for your time, right? Well, it's, I think that's a wholly inappropriate way to end a meeting with a customer because they're not doing you a favour. Now, <coughs> excuse me, when, when I challenge people and say, well, why do you do that? And they say, well, it's because it's polite. And I guess it is polite. And so they say, well, Jamesy, what should we say instead? Because you've got to finish the meeting off some way. So well, why don't you say things like, it's been great talking to you. I'm really looking forward to working with you. All of those sort of things, they, they convey the same sentiment, but nobody's saying anybody's more important than anyone else. What do you think, Chris? I normally end up having a row with people at this point when I put that forward. Yeah, I mean, I can recall certainly an incident with uh, one of your former employers, W.A. Smith, where uh, a trading director did offer to put me up against the wall, um, where I definitely didn't play the subservient role. Yeah. Um, I can't really think of an occasion where I've said thank you for their time. Um, so yeah, I concur. Yeah. Okay. And then, but the other one that really gets under my skin is when we go to see customers and uh, they keep you waiting and they say, sorry to keep you waiting. And the first response is? It's okay. Yeah, well it isn't. It isn't okay, is it? No. So what we do is we start off the meetings with the customer by lying to them, which doesn't sound like a great thing to do. And again, people say, well, well what are you saying to that, James? And I'll give you an example about, for about, 10 years, I owned a food brokerage, so selling products for small manufacturers into the grocery trade. So I, I used to call on this guy at Safeway called Trevor Thomas, right? And every time I went to see him, he used to keep me waiting for half an hour, 45 minutes. And he used to really give me a hump. And one day I, went, I got there, and I was in the middle of getting divorced, so the balance of my mind was a bit disturbed. And he kept me waiting for the statutory three quarters of an hour. I'd go up in the lift, doors open in Safeway Towers. And he said, sorry to keep you waiting. And I said, no, you're not. And he turned and he started walking back towards his office. And after about five or six steps, he turned around and he said, what did you say? I said, I said, Trevor, no, you're not. He said, you do it every single time I come in. Uh, and you know what? You're a big customer of ours. I guess I'm prepared to tolerate it. Either don't do it or don't apologize. Either of those works for me. Now, I fully accept that is a reasonably high risk strategy. Uh, but after, and I've never done it since, just so we're clear. But since, since from that day on, he never kept me waiting. I saw him bring other suppliers down and make them wait in reception to finish their meeting off so I could be seen on time. He used to take all my new products without listing allowances. 
it was a dream. But I absolutely acknowledge it's a high risk strategy for dealing with that. But what I tend to do now, and you can only really do this with people that you know and you've got decent rapport with, is if, for instance, I came to see you and you kept me waiting for half an hour and you said, sorry to keep you waiting, I wouldn't go into, I wouldn't go into the, no, you're not bit. I'd say, um, what's been going on then, Chris? So I'm not saying it's okay, but equally I'm not um, up in the ante. But there's a company that do negotiation training who train most of the retailers. And they say one of their little tips is keep everyone waiting for 10 minutes because it gives you an edge. Really? Your best shot... It's a tad old school, isn't it? Yeah. Your best shot is keeping me waiting in 10 minutes, really? Thing is, though, what you have to be a bit careful of is because to some extent, negotiation is a game, isn't it? There are some rules that turn some cultural norms that people stick to. But if they say, sorry to keep you waiting, you go... That's all right. They're thinking, okay, well, that one's worked. We'll tick that one up. Let's, what's number What's number four on the list of next ploys to try? And you, and you talked about building rapport yeah. um, as opposed to the high-risk strategy. How important is building rapport in negotiation? Because often we won't know the other side until we get into a negotiation. Well, it's, it's interesting you should say that. There's, have you read Cialdini's book, Science yeah. of Influence and Persuasion? I, I would say that anybody that is involved in buying, selling, negotiating, or in fact any sort of human interactions needs to read the Cialdini book. I think it's called The Science of Influence and Persuasion, yeah. but it should be recommended reading. And he talks about why people buy things from people and people like people who are like them. But again, you see, sometimes you see people manipulating it because I remember one of the first jobs I had after I left school is I was a buyer at Sainsbury's and I started... I met this guy from uh, Heinz, right? Mm -hmm. And he came in and he said, well, what are you doing at the weekend, Steve? And I said, oh, well, I'm, actually, I'm going to the football. I've got a season ticket at Tottenham. He said, eh, isn't that the game played by 11 men with all cheap balls? And I thought, oh, okay. From that, I took it to mean that he preferred rugby to football. I thought, okay, fair enough. I thought, you know, whatever. Next time he came in, he knew who was on the transfer list. He knew what the scores were. He knew more about the team I had at I had a season to go than I did. And you're thinking, if it just dropped in a bit of time, like the next time he came, he said, Spurs did well at the weekend, didn't they, Steve? I wouldn't even have spotted him doing it. But it was so obvious that he was just trying to... How does that make you feel? Manipulated. And, uh, and when you feel manipulated in the negotiation, how, how does the outcome normally play out? Well, immediately you put the... You put the um, I mean, one of the key things you need to do when, if you don't want to be exploited is you need to share information with the other person at the same level. So if they're sharing top-line information and you're sharing more detailed information, you run the risk of being exploited. But if you think someone's going to try to exploit you, then you just shut down and just share top-line information or no information at all. So it didn't work for him. And, and, and often in business, <coughs> we come across... Um, situations where it's not a meeting of equals. Often there's someone who's more senior um, that you're trying to sell to, perhaps if you're you know, um, representing your company and trying to sell your products into that distributor or that retailer. Uh, equally, uh, it could be the other way around where the buyer is actually more junior than you as sales director or managing director of your company um, and you feel like you're dealing with, with the monkey. Um, as opposed to the organ grinder. Yeah. How important is it to have that um, rapport and respect even though you're not necessarily on the same level? Well, I think, I think the thing is, there's an, I would call it an empowerment paradox here because 
let's just say I'm negotiating with you and you can make a decision on behalf of your company and I can't, on the face of it, it looks like because you've got the autonomy, you've got the power, but the exact opposite is true. Because whatever you threaten me with, I still have to say no. If I exert the right pressure on you, then you will give in. It's not because you're not any good, it's just because that's what people do. And in that scenario, is that a negotiation in your mind, or is that actually just part of the sales process, where actually the decision's going to be made elsewhere, further up the food chain? Well, I think one of the key mistakes that people often make is they don't actually understand how decisions are made and how they're made within an organisation. Yeah. And I, I, I learned this really, really early on in my career, because I always used to say to people, do you make the decision? And their response was always, yes, I do. Yes, I do. And then I just get massively disappointed when I later found out that they don't. And then after a while, I figured out and what I'm doing is I'm asking people an ego question. So the, it would be almost impossible not to get a response that would that will bolster their own ego there. So now I change it around. So what's, what's the process for decisions being made in this yeah. organisation? So I've turned it away from a, a personal question, yeah. more towards a process question. And they, sometimes people still lie to me, but you know, all you can do is get better results more often. That's the best it gets. Indeed, yeah. Okay, what else should we know about um, the common failings of people in a negotiation situation? What do they often forget and therefore what mistakes are typically made? Well, this is more, uh, this is more, the, this problem is more prevalent on the buying side. A lot of buyers, if you look at buyers and sellers, buyers negotiate a lot. So most buyers will be negotiating four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times a day. Sellers will be probably negotiating once or twice a month. So what sellers have got working for them is they've got plenty of time to plan, they've got plenty of time to prepare, so they ought to be properly planned. What buyers have got going for them is they feel really, really comfortable about the whole idea of negotiation. The problem is that's their Achilles heel. The number of buyers I've worked with whose idea of planning for a supplier meeting is let's get the supplier and let's see what they've got to say, which for me... Shake falls, the tree and see yeah, what yeah, which falls well short <laughs> of what I would expect in terms of preparation. Uh, and I, I don't think everyone thinks that preparation is something that's going to take you hours and hours and hours and hours, and it, and it doesn't really. And I think there's, there's four things you've got to think about. The first is what what are our overall objectives for this negotiation? What, what are we trying to get out of it? What's the point of it? And the second is, and Fisher and Urey um, termed the coin Batna in their book Getting to Yes. And I always think if you listen to podcasts and you don't pick up a bit of bullshit some way through, that it's it's probably you never know, someone might actually pick something. Well, well, indeed, indeed. Who knows? And they called it a BATNA. And, and so what BATNA stands for is what's the best alternative to a negotiated agreement. So if you think about it, your power in the negotiation is driven largely by the quality of the alternative. So if you don't have to do that deal, if you've got another 15 people you could sell to or you've got another 20 suppliers, you're in a better position. But it's more than that. It's not about what your alternatives are. It's what they believe those alternatives to be. Right, so let's just say for argument's sake, uh, I'm supplying you uh, and I want to put the price up and you don't believe that I'll force it through. I can say whatever I like and it will make no difference at all. You still believe that I won't force it through. And any threat then starts to look like sour grapes. And, and what you also see is you see, uh, Lee Thompson in her research found that there are there are two ways of delivering an ultimatum, right? So if I said to you, 
Okay, Chris, that's it. Take it or leave it. What's your first reaction to that statement? I think it probably depends on how childish I'm feeling that particular moment, but knowing me, probably jog on. If you could, your first reaction would be take it or leave it. If I said to you, Chris, look, I've looked at this, I've been all through the numbers, I've discussed it with all of my colleagues, and I've really got nowhere to go. That is the best it's ever going to be. You've got three times more likely to get a yes by not delivering an aggressive ultimatum. Yeah. And, and lots of people deliver aggressive ultimatums. It just annoys people. They call them irritators. And uh, classic irritators are things where uh, I'll make a value judgment mm -hmm. on a proposal you've made to me or one I've made. So I'll, I'll say something like, I'm sure you'll agree, Chris, what I've offered you is very fair. To which the immediate conflict spirals, I'll tell you what's fair. <laughs> and you and you end up with this this argument about nothing. So if, if people if you just want one really, really simple tip, is try not to use that don't make value judgments on your proposal or other people's words like ridiculous, ludicrous, naive, insight, anything like that, any value judgments, try and avoid them. Because I guess if you look at the term negotiation for a lot of people it conjures up that um, image of confrontation yeah. and it's very easy as you're describing to get into a confrontational type situation. And it's good fun as well. It, it can be fun and yeah. we've all probably enjoyed that yeah. you know lots over the years um, but in the greater scheme of things of getting a deal done where both parties perhaps want to get a deal done and believe there's a deal to be done it's not necessarily particularly helpful I'm assuming. No, I mean, if you look at the people that are consistently successful, and I don't mean in a one-off, yeah. consistently successful, they collaborate. Now, what collaborative people do is they say, okay, Chris, I've got needs that have got to be met, and I'm not giving any of them away, and I understand that you've got needs that have got to be met as well. I don't expect you to give any of those away either, so we need to do the, that works for everyone. People confuse that with compromising, where you ask for 10, I ask for 6, and we end up at 8. So we're both equally fed up with the outcome, but it looks fair. Yeah. And that most people immediately go to compromise before they start to collaborate. So most negotiations are, are mixed motive in as much as you want, you want to collaborate so the deal can be as best as, as good as it can be for everybody, but you've absolutely got to claim your share of what's on offer to avoid getting... Uh, so that concept of splitting the difference invariably brings nothing but anger for both parties. Well, you end up with residual resentment afterwards. But the problem is, once this, we won't go into this in detail, but there's five ways that people deal with conflict, one of which is compromise. And as soon as people figure out that your primary way that you deal with conflict is to compromise, they just ask for more because they know you're going to split the difference. So it's, if, it's only a, if, it's, if there's not much at stake, and it's only a small gap to get deals done, compromise. So again, you know, lots of... Uh books written, lots of talk on social media about the need for negotiation to end up in a win-win situation. Last me the sick bag. Yeah, yeah. go on. Tell us about your views on that. Well, I'm sure there'll be... A... The problem is, as, as life has started to get harder and commerce has started to get harder, I don't know if you've seen this in your business, more and more people are happy to win at my expense. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, as far as I'm concerned, I would prefer the outcome to be win-win, absolutely. I want everybody to walk away feeling happy, but if it's got to be win-lose, I know where I'm going to be sitting. Okay. 
and, and we've touched a little bit on preparation. Oh yeah, I've got already, to point number two. But let, let's delve back into that in, the, in a bit more detail. What should people do to prepare well to avoid those crap deals? Okay, so the first, so first thing to do is set the overall objectives. Try to try to um, make sure you're clear what your alternatives are and flag them to the other party. Yeah. Right. Now, if you look at the Brexit negotiations, irrespective of what you think the merits or otherwise are of the sure. decision, the one thing we never did is flagged that we could be or would be prepared to leave without a deal. Sure. Now, as soon as you've taken it, the alternatives off, you just have to accept whatever whatever's on offer. And the other, the other, can I go into Brexit? Yeah, go for it. The other thing that that Mrs. May did, and people do this a lot, and so it's not just her, is. One party puts a stake in the ground, so Theresa May says, well, this is a deal, and the other party goes, no. She says, we'll have a bit more, and then they go, no. And they go, have a bit more, and they go, no. Well, what else are they going to do? If just by saying no, you give them a bit more, why wouldn't you keep doing it? Absolutely. So, so there's a, here's another rule coming out here, which is once you put your stake in the ground, you don't move until they've put a stake in the ground. And, and what you, the thing you have to be careful here is that uh, I've got four rules for putting a stake in the ground. And the first rule is you want to get the stake in the ground at the earliest possible opportunity. Sure. And you get some people saying, rule number one in negotiation, never name your price first. They couldn't be more wrong. There's loads of research to suggest that there is an anchoring effect of opening offers. So if I'm negotiating with you, well, have you ever been in a situation where you thought, well, I'm going to ask for the customer for that. And the customer's got the stake in the ground first and you thought, what I was going to ask was a bit optimistic. I better move towards them. Have you ever done that? Or probably, you've probably got friends in years gone by, definitely. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you wouldn't do it now, would you? I'd try to have that. No, no but the point is, it, you and me have been, we've done this for a long time, and we still have this driver to do that. Well, everybody else is the same. So the key thing is you put your stake in the ground, and some people say what you've got to ask for has to be realistic. What you have to want, what you ask for has to be defensible. It doesn't have to be realistic, it has to be defensible because I think realistic is a bit self-limiting. Because typically what happens, you start there, I start there, it polarises plus or minus 10% of the midpoint. Is that what you've seen generally in yeah. yeah. So, obvious or fairly obviously, the more you ask for, the more you end up with. So the first rule is you want to put the stake in the ground at the earliest possible opportunity. And when some people say, no, 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 keep your powder dry, never name your price first. And I always say to them, okay, why, why do you believe that? And the first thing is they say, well, they might have given me more than I was going to ask for. Really? Your preparation is so crap that someone might have offered you more than you were asked for. Really? Yeah. I don't think that stands up to scrutiny. Uh, the only time I wouldn't put my stake in the ground early is if there was a complete asymmetry of information. If I was going into a market I didn't understand, or I knew you had a lot more information than I did, I wouldn't necessarily, I wouldn't do it then. Sure. And the that comes back to the planning piece again, yeah. to make sure you've got enough if, information if before you entering. If you can. So if, for instance, I know your business is all about business coaching and stuff like that, but if you decided you wanted to go into, I don't know, selling second-hand cars, um, that's probably a bad example because there's lots of information available, but going to... I don't know, selling bespoke written software, mm -hmm. you've got no way of knowing what the market rate is for those products. Sure. So it'd be very, very hard to pick a decent open. So that's the first one. The second, the se so the first one is they say, they might have given me more, which I, I just don't buy. The second one is, um, it might have what they would call a freezing effect. So I put the stake in the ground and the other party thinks it's ridiculous. They just go, no, 
and then you've got nowhere to go. So what Rackham found in his research was what the skilled negotiators would do was completely different to what the average negotiators would do. Average negotiators would put a stake in the ground with no conversation, no discussion, no explanation, or they put a stake in the ground and then they try to explain it afterwards. Now, problem with that is if you put the stake in the ground and it's not what the other party is expecting to hear, they've stopped listening. They're not interested in what you've got to say. So what Rackham found the skilled negotiators did, they did it the other way around. So they would say, um, I don't know, we've got 14 other potential suppliers of this and the average price they quoted us is six quid. And for that reason, you need to charge me six quid. So they would give the rationale and then put the stake in the ground. Now, so the first rule is put the stake in the ground early. The second is put the stake in the ground firmly. We don't want about five grand, around five grand, something in the region of five grand, we want five grand, and then shut up. What a lot of people will do is they'll put the stake in the ground and then they'll say, how does that sound, Chris? What are your thoughts on that one? What do you think? As soon as you look for approval, it looks like you don't believe it either. Yeah. Right, so early, firmly, shut up, and if you possibly can, put it in writing because most negotiations polarise around whoever has made the written proposal. So, to recap, rationale, mm -hmm. then the stake in the ground, early, firmly, shut up, put it in writing. Fantastic. Oh, another thing, I just get so excited about it. <laughs> the other thing is, what you don't do is, don't ask people to justify their position. If I say to you, well, how do you justify that, Chris? What's the implication? I'm immediately on the back foot. I'm feeling defensive. And if I can be bothered to justify it in the first place, right? Yeah, well, that wasn't, that, was, that wasn't what I was thinking of. If I ask you how you justify your position, the implication is, if you justify it, I'm going to go along with it. Now, the more you talk about your position, the more you start to get attached to it. So I talk about mine. I don't talk about yours. I talk about mine. And the other thing some people that don't handle conflict very well don't do is if you ask me for something and it's out of the question, I will tell you it's out of the question immediately you said it. Because the longer it's left, the longer the more longer I believe it to be a possibility. Yeah. Yeah. Good. But you're getting the hang I'm of getting it. I'm getting the hang of this, yeah. aren't I? Yeah. I'm even better picking a few tips yeah. myself here. Yeah. Okay. So let's imagine not everybody watching this is as skilled as you. Um, they've already embarked on early stage negotiations and what have you, and they've not done the planning and the preparation work. They've perhaps not put that stake in the ground early. What are the chances of them retrieving that situation and actually turning it around into a reasonable deal that people potentially could both go away happy with? Well, if you go back to what I was talking about, the stages of planning, if you remember I said the first one is set the overall objectives, the second one is to identify what your alternatives are. The third one is to decide what your variables are. Now there's three sorts of variables you can have in negotiations. There's directly financial variables, that's stuff like money, right? That's really, really easy to understand. There's indirectly financial variables. So that might be things like payment terms. I'm sure the accountants amongst us will argue that payment terms are not an indirectly financial variable, they are directly financial variable, but you, but you get the point. So stuff like things like drop size is yeah. an indirectly financial variable. It costs you more to deliver part lorries than whole lorries. Whole lorries yeah. And the other is non-financial variables and they're more used in collective bargaining. So it might be something like 
the union of those charities will say, we want people that have been here for the longest to get first approval on overtime. Now that doesn't cost the company any more money, but it's really important to the people on the other side. So you need to figure out what your variables are. And then once you've figured out your variables, you need to decide to set limits on them. And what you find is the people that have uh, a wider range of variables tend to do better in negotiation because otherwise, if all you're thinking about is the headline price, yeah. you just end up with a haggle over price. Five quid for that, you must be crazy. We'll give you a penny out of four pound, 54, 75, we've got a deal. You end up with something like that. So, uh, and so what you also need to do is link things together. So two things have to change at the same time, otherwise you're haggling. You know, like the Monty Python. I'll give you this, I'll, you know, you in return for, yeah, yeah, and everyone says it. Whoever does your negotiation training, they say the structure is if you specific, then we vague. So if I give you an example, uh, if you reduce your prices by 5%, then we will consider giving your business. But the important thing is to tell them what you want first, before you tell them what they're going to get in return. Okay. And, you know, many of the negotiations you've been involved with and many of the teams that you've helped, you know, build their negotiation skills, you know, as, as we've heard already, they've been in, you know, you know, mainstream grocery and a lot of the big FMCG firms that are selling to those grocery outlets, both here in the UK and, and overseas. For, um, perhaps a smaller SME type organisation that is perhaps going for that big record breaking deal for the first time where they're having to negotiate with you know, uh, a potentially huge customer for them and what have you. Are there any other tips that they should be aware of? Yeah, I mean, what you've got to do is you've got to decide at what point this becomes a done deal for you and don't get sucked in by the fact that it's very, very seductive because it's a big customer. And the other problem as well is I've seen so many people waste so much time from what they think is the holy grail of customers. And uh, Rackham wrote a really good book called Spin Selling. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it, Rackham talks about advances and continuances. So let's just say uh, you're Sainsbury's and I'm, I don't know, some small ice cream yeah. maker in the southwest and i go to see you and uh i come back and think yeah that was a good meeting and then i come back to see you again and we have another good meeting and six weeks later i go out and we have another good meeting and he said what you need to think about is when you go back what's changed in the sales process mm -hmm. and every meeting you go to forget the negotiation every meeting you go to you should try to think what advance you want so if I come back to you and all we do is replay the same meeting again and again and again and again, you're better off saving the petrol. Yeah. And so again, it comes back to that preparation and planning yeah. piece. And setting your overall and objectives for objective. it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. Um, anything else that you've learned over the years that you know our viewers today would, would really benefit from? Well, uh, what I would do is... I mean, there's a few golden rules, if you'd like me to drop a few golden Go rules. On, drop us a nugget or two. As Al Murray says, where would we be without rules? Indeed. France. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're allowed to use that? Is that plain, I think we can. Plagiarism. We won't have anything to do with him in a few months' time, according to uh, Mr. PM. Well, it, well in indeed. Indeed. Um, and it, but you know, I was talking earlier about linking issues together. If you look at what happened in the Brexit negotiations, what... 
Overall, what were the EU's overarching objectives? I would suggest that the first objective was to try to stop us leaving. Would you agree that's probably the I agree. Yeah. And their second objective, if that wasn't going to be the case, was to get as much money out of us for as long as possible. For sure. Right. Okay, let's just assume that at an intellectual level that was going on, irrespective of the merits of whether we should be in or not. Now, the first thing Mrs. May does, and um, what did we want out of it? We wanted a free trade agreement. Agreed. That's, that's lovely. So what, what's the first thing Mrs. May does? Give them the thing that they want, their 39 billion or whatever the number was, and allow that to be unleashed from a free trade agreement. Why would you do that? It's just insane. It's just poor negotiation strategy. What were, we, what were we talking about before I so rudely interrupted you again? Do you know, I can't actually remember. Was it rules? So, rule number one, first rule of negotiation is don't negotiate, persuade. When you put your stake in the ground, whatever they say, at least make a cursory effort yeah. to try to persuade them to do what you've asked them to do. Because negotiators expect to negotiate. The clues in the title. And if you take that part, that away from them, they're going to hate you forever. And there was a bloke called um, Lemuel Bulwar, who was the, the HR Director of General Electric. I can't Electric. even think, to think about how you would spell that. <laughs> but let's not go there. Okay. <laughs> but he was a sound, the um, HR Director of General Electric. And what he used to do is when he negotiated with the unions, he would put a stake in the ground and refuse to move. So he would look at what was happening in the marketplace, what the settlements were in other organisations, and what he offered the unions were, um, however you look at it, they were fair offers, and fair is an irritator, so we don't, mm -hmm. but they were fair, as an outside observer, you'd say they were fair offers. And they had the worst industrial relations period in the whole of the, uh, in the, whole of the company's history, because negotiators expect to negotiate. So if you put a stake in the ground and refuse to move, they're going to hate you forever. There is the cultural norm is you don't end up where you started. So uh, try to persuade them. And the second one is nothing is for nothing. Right. Now, I hear people say, oh, well, um, what we do is we make concessions because it creates goodwill. It doesn't. It's a bit like chucking steaks to the tiger, hoping they're going to become a vegetarian. All that happens is if you stop making those concessions, people say you're not collaborating anymore. So make sure you get something in return. It don't have to be the same value, mm -hmm. but you've just got to be, you've got to establish the norm that is if I give you something, I get something back. And, and we talked a little bit earlier on about the win-win versus the win-lose, yeah. etc. How important have you seen it to be over your many years of helping people build their negotiation skills to think about not just this deal, but future deals? Well, all of Rackham's research, he classified people as, uh, as skilled negotiators who had a record of implementation success. Now, if I've only got to do a deal with you once, I'm only going to meet you once, these overtly aggressive behaviours can be very, very successful. Yeah. If I've got to see you again next week, who, wh whatever the relative power position is, yeah. if I've got to see you next week... Uh, well, I think we'll return. Yeah. And I mean, I, I remember um, early on in my career, I used to be the evaporated milk buyer for Tesco. And I know what you're thinking. We've got the top banana. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and there was a guy that used to work for Carnation Foods who used to sell to me. And yeah. like, 20 years later, I'm running this advanced negotiation course for Tesco. And this guy is in the room 
and he was the, he was running up all their county goods division. And he said, "Can I tell you something, Steve? Like Fifteen or twenty years he waited for this. He said, I tell you something, Steve. Yeah, what's on your mind? Then? You know when um, you were the buyer for evaporated milk, you used to call me the boy from Carnation. Yeah, he said, and uh, you know how you used to keep me waiting every single time I come to see you for half an hour. Yeah. You There's know, an irony to, in this story. So you know how you used to shout and scream and swear at me, and you were generally quite vile? Yeah. And you know how you were our, you were our single biggest customer in Europe? Yeah. You've got the worst terms of anyone in the whole of the UK grocery <laughs> chain. And once I got over the embarrassment, I thought, now, isn't that interesting? How this overtly aggressive behaviour drives this passive aggressive behaviour in other people. And the people that are easy to manipulate are the people that are highly accommodating because for people who the relationship is everything, if I shouted and screamed at you, I would imagine you're reasonably accommodating but quite competitive as well. If I shouted and screamed at you, I reckon I'd probably get similar back, assuming we had a, a similar power position. It's like classic NLP thing, isn't it? Mirroring back. Yeah, yeah. But if I said to you, well, Chris, you do realise um, if you don't make this concession, how that's going to damage our relationship. You get people that are highly committed. Oh no, the relationship's at risk, and you're more likely to get them to make concessions by those kinds of behaviour than the overtly aggressive ones. So what were we talking about before I lost the plot? I think we've been all around the houses actually, but I think what we've got from today's conversation is a, a real insight into the do's and don'ts. Uh, certainly, the bit that's resonated with me is the benefits of upfront planning and preparation for negotiations, um, and and not coming out with stuff that you later regret, you know, and not therefore understanding that it's a process as opposed to, you know, a slam dunk, sort of, I'm going in and I'm going to bash it out quickly. Presumably, though, with that in mind, you've seen lots of deals take many, many months, if not longer, sometimes on the bigger negotiations. And is there, on occasions from your experience, a tendency to try and rush deals through at the expense of getting the right deal? Because we're all under pressure, aren't we? To deliver for our businesses, you know, to, to improve the bottom line, to win that next big customer. Yeah, I mean, what, what I've found, and I've got nothing to base this on, is this is just what I've observed. And I tend to find that if the deal drags on, eventually people start to get bored with it. And most decent deals, if I, if I want to do a deal with you, the chances are, and you want to do a deal with me, we'd probably do it quite quickly, wouldn't we? If I'm not bothered one way or the other, then it will drag on until you get bored with it as well. So how do you make the decision about when to walk away? Because as, as you say, emotionally we often get dragged into, I've been doing this now for a number of weeks, we've had all these conversations, I've written all these proposals, etc. You know, I've just got to get it done now. My boss is on my back. Um, but actually, well, when's the right time to say, I mean, you know what, enough's enough, walk away? It's a classic sunk cost fallacy, isn't it? I've spent so much time on this. If I spend a little bit more time with them, you, you have to just, it's a judgment. Call, isn't it? You just got to decide this is too much like hard work. It's just, I don't think there's an easy answer to it. All right, um, let's go back to that toxic subject of Brexit just quickly. Just maybe finish up with that. Um, number of uh, people watching today will already be working with uh, partners in continental Europe, etc. Some of the bigger retailers we know previously had stockpiled and so on and so forth. What should they be thinking about, some of these SMEs in particular, over the coming months, if not years, depending on how 
quickly you think this is going to get done, if at all? Well, I mean, what would be nice is to have some idea about whether there were going to be tariff barriers. Quite, I mean, I work for a couple of big retailers, one of them a European one, and they hated the last three years, not, not because either the UK were going to leave or weren't going to leave, but four times they've had to buy in significant amounts of stock just to protect themselves sure. from potential shortages. And many of that comes from the uncertainty yeah. of the whole process. And, and in reality, right now, as I sit here, I, I don't see any change to that, other than the fact that we've got a government that's now got a mandate to go and negotiate. No, I mean, what, what you do know is you do know, assuming that what Mr Johnson says is true, and I've got no reason, with a decent majority, there's no reason why it shouldn't be true, yeah. that we know what the process is going to be. We still don't know what the outcome is. We don't know what the paperwork is going to be required. I mean, as an SME, as, an, as a big company, at least you get somebody into Downing Street like Dave Lewis at Tesco and Mike Coop at Sainsbury's wandering to Downing Street have a little chat with the Prime Minister and they, they've got an inside track on what's going on and they can influence what's going on. As an SME, you're, you're knackered. I mean. So, you know, with all the experience and exposure you've had to some of those big FMCG firms, um, the big grocery retailers, etc., who, as you say, can just walk straight into Downing Street and, and have a conversation with the PM, what is it that the SMEs can learn from the work that those bigger organisations are doing right now to protect themselves to a large degree from the uncertainty that still exists? Well, I mean, it's probably what you would advise your clients, isn't it, Chris? Don't have all your eggs in one basket. Try to make sure that you, at least you've got a decent amount of business in the UK. At least in the short term, you should be trying to build up business in the UK because you've got certainty sure. that you will be able to supply them. But keep all your friends on the other side of the water close as well. And, and look at some other territories perhaps further. Yeah, yeah outside of the yeah. I mean, the thing is, the EU's very, very seductive because it's very close, isn't it? There's been a long history of trading very successfully. Yeah. So fingers crossed it will all work out. Um, Steve, thanks ever so much for joining us today. It's been a fascinating insight, if not a, a comical one at times. Thanks for the great anecdotes and what have you. For those of you that enjoyed the, the podcast today, please don't forget to subscribe. Details coming up in a minute. Um, and, and once again, Steve, thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers. Great to see you.